At some point early this week, I, um, I, I was riding around with Cody and I said, are you guys non-instrumental? Because that means y'all can sing. Um, and, and one of the last times I was with a four-part harmonious non-instrumental group, it was um, 2008 and I was on my first trip in Israel. And I was with 54 Amish folk. And man, could they sing. And so I thought to myself, oh man, can I put in a couple requests for he leadeth me and revive us again? And what I didn't calculate was how it would port me back to 2008. And I'd be an emotional mess as I sat there and sang revive us again. It would have been great if we would have started with that and given me 20 minutes to recover. But I digress. How's everybody doing this morning? I'm going to come down here. Is that okay? Hooray. Good. Because I want to look at what you're looking at. It's always awkward when I look back there. I want to look here. So my name is Marty Solomon, and we do have the, let's see if this is going to work for me. There we go. I'm the president of Impact Campus Ministries. I'm the creator and executive producer of the Baymont Podcast. I'm Jewish, and that's why I wear these funny things off my pants. We can just get that taken care of right off the bat so that you don't have to sit there for the next 30 minutes and go, what are those things on his belt? So that's my tallit, and it always is helpful when I just acknowledge that before we even get started. But I love to start, begin at the beginning, because the beginning feels like a good place to begin, Yes. The things we're going to go over today, uh, you can find them if you want to do like a little bit of a deeper dive or maybe like, why are you coming at this this way? Episode zero is our introductory lesson. It talks about the difference between Eastern versus Western thought. So the world of the Bible is Eastern. It's an Eastern book written by Eastern authors to an Eastern audience. We're Western. We're Western Americans. And we process and present information differently. And so one of the first things that you want to do is get used to that. So that's episode zero. Episode one is essentially what I'm going to do in front of you today. So if you want to hear it yet again in another way, you can always listen to episode one, and that's where you can find those, baymodiscipleship.com slash number of episode, in case you need that. In the beginning, God created, say, Bereshit, Barah. Elohim, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. The word for God is the word Elohim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. Say tohu vavohu. That's the Hebrew phrase for formless and void. Now, the earth was formless and void. King James used to say wild and waste. Tohu vavohu is Hebrew for if you were to put nothing in a blender and hit whip, you get tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu is chaotic nothingness. So if you're sitting there going, wait, you put nothing in the blender. Exactly. It's chaotic nothingness. There's nothing there. Not only is there nothing, but the nothing itself is chaos. And God speaks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and the Spirit, say ruach. Yeah, good, you guys did the ha at the end of it. Ruach. 
Ruach is spirit, it's wind, it's breath. Same word in the Hebrew. Same in the Greek, by the way, which is super weird. That's not common. But the Greek word is pneuma. Say pneuma. That's, that's spirit, that's wind, that's breath. And the Ruach, the spirit of God, hovered. Say merachephet. Merachephet is what a, there's a dove only in the Middle East, only in the region of Palestine, where the dove it, it like hovers almost like a hummingbird. Like it just sits in one spot. And its wings aren't moving super fast, but it's just not moving at all. I've seen it like two or three times. And every time I've seen it, I've like started freaking out at the group. And the group is like, why are you panicking? Like, because of the dove, the dove, look, Merahephet, Merahephet. And everybody's like, we have no idea what you're talking about. That's Merahephet. The spirit of God is hovering like a dove over the surface of the deep. And God said, so in the very beginning of this creation poem, more on that in a moment, you end up with these three elements of Elohim. Elohim is creator. Elohim is spirit, ruach. And Elohim is word, spoken Word And God said, God is interacting with creation in three different ways. Now, for all the Christian thinkers, you're all going, <laughs> and you would be right. We're not going to dwell there, but it's fun to point out the threeness of this God character in the opening chapter, the beginning of the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, tohu vavohu, and the ruach of God merachephet over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. God separated the light from the darkness. And it was evening, and it was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault in the sky and let it separate the waters above from the waters below. And it was so. God put a vault in the sky and it separated the waters above from the waters below. The vault he called sky. And it was evening and it was morning the second day. And God said, let the land be gathered into one place and let the seas appear. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. And God said that the land produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to its kind, and plants with seed in it according to its kind. And it was so, the land produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to its kind, and plants bearing fruit with seed in it according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be heavenly bodies in the skies to govern the days, the years, and the seasons. And it was so. God made the greater light to govern the day. This he called the sun. God made the lesser light to govern the night. This he called the moon. And God also made the stars. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening. And it was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters be teeming with Finned creatures, let the skies be teeming with feathered creatures and let them reproduce according to their kind. And it was so. 
And God saw that it was good. It was evening and it was morning, the fifth day. And then God said, let, let there be beasts on the earth. Let there be livestock and creatures that crawl around on the, on the ground and the wild beasts and let them reproduce according to their kind. And it was so, and God saw that it was good. And it was evening and it was morning, the sixth day. And then God makes mankind. Let us make mankind in our image. Male and female, he created them. And God saw that it was good. And then on the seventh day, God steps back and he says, it is tov meod. Say tov meod. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. Tov meod is the Hebrew word for very. At the end of all of this, God steps back and he sees that it's very good. And then God, of course, rests. Now, if you're watching this story, you'll notice that there are these like refrains in the story. If you're listening, not just watching, they didn't have PowerPoint back then. If you're listening to this story, they didn't have the printing press. You couldn't even follow along in your book. You had to be reciting this around a campfire. And if you're hearing this story, you're hearing these, this repetitive, there's almost a cadence to this story. Did you hear it as I recited it? It almost has this there's these same elements that just kind of repeat themselves. Here's one of them. It was evening and it was morning, which seems backwards because it shouldn't it be morning and then evening the first day? Morning and then, but every single time it was evening and morning the first day. It was evening and morning the second day. There is this refrain, more on that later. There's another refrain that keeps showing up. It was good. It was good, and 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 it was very good. Say it again. Tov meod. It was very good. You see, this story has these rhythms to it. It has a cadence to it. It has a back and forth to it. The story, in a sense, the story is about creating, and in another sense, the story is about resting. The story is about engaging and making something, and yet the story is also about nothingness. This started with nothingness. At the end of the story, God does what? Rest, which is another way of saying nothing. So it starts with nothing, and it ends with nothing. This story, in some sense, is about doing everything, and this story, in another sense, is about doing nothing. There is a, there is a rhythm, there is a cadence to this story. In fact, if you go back to the story itself and you look at it, and you actually look at the Hebrew language, you'll notice that God separates on the first three days. He separates light from darkness. He doesn't actually create anything. He separates light from darkness. He separates the waters above from the waters below. He separates the land from the seas. And then you'll notice that God actually fills what he previously separated. Again, doesn't necessarily create. He actually has the land produce vegetation. He puts, he fills the heavenly bodies. Obviously, he's creating. It's not my point. But there's this three-part separation and then a three-part filling of the things that he's previously separated. Almost like there's a line in the middle of the poem. Almost like there's a first half and a second half. And if you don't believe me, then just watch this. The sun, moon, and the stars are connected to the place where light and dark come from. Birds and fish go into the 
skies and waters and beasts and humans fill the land and the seas. Day four is connected to day one. Day five connected to day two. And day six connected to day three. There is a rhythm. There is a cadence. There is a relationship to this story where there's a front half and there's a back half. And you can realize that this story must be about this cadence. It must be about this this, like, it must not be a science lab report because it doesn't make any sense. Like, how do you have plants without the sun, which actually makes the plant? And by the way, how do you have light without the sun that produces the light? And how do we even know, by the way, how are we always known throughout all of human history that a day is a day? By the movement of the earth around the, the sun or the sun around the earth or however you want to look at that historically. But it's always been, but that's not even created till day four, which raises the question, how do we even know the first three days are days? Thank you for chuckling at that. Yeah, see, this story is about something other than just like a, 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 a story telling us like what happened or how things happened. This story must be about something else. And in fact, when you, I'm going to actually check my notes because I always get this screwed up. So I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look and make sure that I have my notes correct. You'll notice that there are these repetitions. You'll notice that there is a threeness to the story. You remember God showed up in a threeness, creator, spirit, word. You'll notice that there are three days of separating and three days of filling. So there are three, actually you can follow this all the way through. There are all these threes throughout the story. What other number might you expect to see? Hint, it's on the screen. Seven, there are seven days of creation. You might expect to see patterns of seven. The phrase, and it was so, appears seven times in the story. The phrase, and God saw, appears seven times in the story. Of course, if you have, uh, if you have groups of three and groups of seven, it raises the question, well, I would expect to find groups of 10. And that's kind of funny until you actually look for it and then you realize, oh my goodness, the phrase to make occurs 10 times in this poem. The phrase according to their kinds occurs 10 times in the poem. And just when you're like, okay, well, whatever. Okay, the phrase and God said occurs 10 times, three times in relation to people, seven times in relation to creatures. <laughs> The phrase, let there be, occurs ten times. Three times of things in the heavens and seven times in things on the earth. There are threes and sevens and tens. There are refrains and cadences. This story is about something other than just what happened. This story is trying to communicate something to us about the essence of the world we live in. The ancients would have looked at this and immediately known what they were looking at. When you see two sides of a story. Almost like, almost like the story is a mirror. Like you could almost pick up one side and mirror the other side. Like take that half of the story and it just mirrors the second half of the story. That is an ancient Eastern literary tool called chiasmus. Say chiasmus. I usually will just say chiasm. It's a chiasm. Chiasmus. You can look this up online. It's everywhere. It's an ancient Eastern literary tool. It's not Bible code. It's not Bible code. It's the way that people in the ancient Eastern world communicated truths. It's the way they helped themselves remember the story. 
Remember, you don't have a printing press, so you can't carry your Bible around in your back pocket, so you have to create the story in such a way that it's easier to remember. So the more that you can use repetition and the more that you can use parallelism, the easier it is for you to remember the story because you have to tell the story again and again and again. Now, a chiasm can be inverted or it can be paralleled. What do I mean by that? There are actually seven different kinds of chiasm, but I'm not going to go over all those today. There's an inverted parallelism, which is A, B, C, C, B, A. And then there's a parallel chiasm, also known as A, B, C, A, B, C. Genesis 1 happens to be both at the same time. Let me show you what I mean. Genesis 1 is the ABC, ABC chiasm. We just looked at it. Three days of filling, three, day, or three days of separating, three days of filling. Day 4 related to day 1, day 5 to day 2, day 6 to day 3. Tracking with me so far? Okay, but if you were to look at your Bible, the chiasm is also an inverted parallelism. Day 1 is a baby paragraph. Day 2 is a mommy paragraph. Day three is a daddy paragraph. These are the terms they teach you in seminary. I'm just kidding. They don't use these terms. Baby paragraph, mommy paragraph, daddy paragraph. Day four is a daddy paragraph. Day five is a mommy paragraph. And day six would be a baby paragraph if it wasn't for the pesky creation of you all, mankind, humankind. So you have baby, mommy, daddy, daddy, mommy, baby, making an inverted parallelism. When an Easterner realizes that what they're looking at is a chiasm, they realize that the ancient Eastern author is burying a treasure. All chiasms do not work this way, but this chiasm happens to, according to the rabbis. When you have an inverted parallelism, it literally points, again, this is not Bible code, this is an ancient Eastern literary tool. It points to where the treasure is buried. Here's why the Easterner buries a treasure. I could tell you the truth, you could memorize it, but you would not be impacted as much as if you discovered it on your own. An Easterner believes that the process of discovery is actually what transforms us on so many levels. If I can discover the truth, it will shape me, provoke me, surprise me, change me. And so the Easterner is purposely hiding, purposely burying, and giving you a treasure map to find a truth so that you can be changed and transformed. How does a Westerner do it? We get up here, we preach a sermon with three parts, and they all start with the letter R. I don't know if Jake does that or not. It's about relationships, rightness, and righteousness. And everybody goes, wow, he is smart. And we try to convey, we try to just communicate data to you as Westerners. The Easterner goes, hey, here's a treasure map. Do you got a shovel? And you're like, oh. And so you start to dig, and you start to dig, and you look. And at the center the, the, the Genesis 1 chiasm is actually more like this. Like sometimes it will literally point to the center. Like it would be a daddy, mommy, baby, baby, mommy, daddy. Genesis 1 happens to be baby, mommy, dad. You can actually see this in the NIV chapter 1 of Genesis. You can see day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. Mankind. The center word, if you were to count Hebrew words, you have to leave out 
Everybody writes me this email. You have to leave out the chunk about the creation of humankind. Because that's what the story's actually about. The story of Genesis 1 has everything to do with you and me and our place in this story. The creation poem, you have to take that blurb and just look at the chiasm itself. And you find out that their center word, if you count the Hebrew words, the word that lands right in the middle of Genesis chapter 1 is the Hebrew word moad. Say moad. Moadim. Say moadim. Moadim is plural. Moadim is seasons. It's right where you would want it to be in day four. God put the sun, the moon, and the stars to govern the days, the years, and the moadim, the seasons. What are the seasons? Did you know that the tent of meeting, go ahead and look this up in any of your lexicons. Remember the tent of meeting where Moses meets with God? We call it the tent of meeting. Makes sense. It's where he meets with God. You know what it, is? You know what it actually is in the Hebrew? The tent of moadim. <laughs> That's extra credit. Okay. The Moadim, what are the seasons? The seasons are one of the four words that the Jews will use for Sabbath. Because these are the festivals. You know, Sukkot, Shavuot, Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, Yom Kippur, day of atonement, Sukkot, the festival of tabernacles, Shavuot, the festival of weeks, Pesach, Passover. Those are called the Moadim. They are holidays, but they are also Sabbaths. So this story, it raises the question, why is the word Moad, Moadim, the buried treasure of Genesis chapter 1? Who is it traditionally that hears this story for the very first time? Traditionally. Who are the first people that are going to hear this story? Who wrote this story traditionally? Don't overthink it. Don't get textual criticism. Like just who wrote this story? His name was Moses. God is also an acceptable answer, but Moses is the one we're looking for. So Moses wrote this, this, this story, and where did he write it? Mount Sinai. And who's at the bottom of Mount Sinai? A bunch of people that have just been rescued from Egypt, where they were Slaves, and when did they make? What did they make? Probably lots of things, but bricks. And how many days a week does a slave work in Egypt? Seven. And how many hours a day does a slave work? Seven days a week. All of them, whatever that is, a lot. And your value as an Egyptian slave is tied literally to how many bricks you can produce. How many bricks can you produce? How many bricks can you produce? How many bricks can you produce? And that's what they're telling you your value is tied to. You are only as valuable as the amount of bricks that you can produce. That's Egypt's narrative. Even if you're like, I don't believe that narrative, I reject that narrative. Ah, On a very practical level, it's still the narrative you have to live with. Because if you don't produce enough bricks, what does Egypt do to you? Don't answer that out loud. And if you're no longer around, what does Egypt, don't answer this out loud, what does Egypt do to your family? You see, you can reject the poetic nature of Egypt's narrative, but there's a very practical reality about Egypt's narrative in your life. 
And so God rescues his people out of Egypt and he drags them through the Red Sea and they travel for 10 days to get to Mount Sinai where they camp for 40 days and God's first lesson to them, first lesson, lesson number one, where are you gonna start if you're God? This is, a, this is his first lesson to his people in the Bible. Story number one, page number one, lesson number one, Bible 101, intro lesson. This is where God starts. Your value and your worth is not found in how many bricks you can produce. Story number one in your Bible is a story about Sabbath. Story number one in your Bible is a story about festivals and parties and celebrations. Story number one of your Bible is about how creation was what? Tov Mayod. Story number one in your Bible is God saying, I need you to reorient and reframe what you fundamentally think this cosmos is about. You are valued and loved. You are my beloved. You are a part. You are the awkward thing that's not even supposed to be in the poem. You're the weird, out-of-place paragraph. And your relationship, I need you to stop. Let's go to these refrains, can we? Why evening and morning? Why not morning and evening? Why are the Jews like the only people group that have ever defined time, evening and morning the first day? It's so backwards. Because the Jew will tell you, your day doesn't start when you wake up. That's what we think. Good Americans. Good Texans. We get up in the morning, we get out to go do our work, and that's when our, that's when our day begins, because I'm a doer. The Hebrew calendar says, no, your day starts when you go to sleep. Because you are who you are. You are loved and valued before you, before you ever do anything. The first thing you do is rest. Your value and your worth is not found in what you do. Your value and worth is found in who you are. We know this. As moms and dads, I used to sit and watch my daughter sleep. Because I loved her. I was in love with her. Not what she would do when she got up in the morning. Does everybody know what we're talking about here? What do you think God feels when he looks at you? Man, I'm sure I'm glad you're good at stuff. <laughs> Newsflash, we're not that good at stuff. We're like the kid that brings the like crazy elephant drawn with crayon and God's like, oh, you're so good at stuff. Let me stick that on the fridge. I love you. I love you, God says. How about this? It was good. You know, this is where your Bible begins. Your Bible begins here with the goodness of creation of which you are a part and I get it. The very next story is going to get into your sinfulness. But it's the next story, not the first one. Are we preaching? It's the next story, not the first one. And I get really concerned when Christian theology starts the story in Genesis 3 because you're starting the story two chapters too late. 
When you start the story in Genesis 3, the story is about what you're not. But when you start the story in Genesis 1 where God started it, the story is about what you are. When you start the story in Genesis 3, the story is about the removal of sin. But when you start the story in Genesis 1 where God did, the story is about the restoration of shalom and wholeness and goodness. When you start the story in Genesis 3, it's about disembodied evacuation. Some glad morning when this life is o'er, all fly away. But when you start the story in Genesis 1 where God did, the story is about the, restora- uh, the uh, physical participation, excuse me. Genesis 3, disembodied evacuation. Genesis 1, physical participation. You're being invited to participate physically in the physical work of God in creation. This radically changes theology. I really hope that I'll fly away is not our closing hymn. Okay, good. Whew. It was it was on my it was last Sunday two Sundays ago it was not good. I was like pulling notes out of my presentation like no no no. This story is about creating and resting because God's invitation to rest. Did you notice that there's no refrain for day seven? It was evening and morning the first day. It was evening and morning the second day. It was evening and morning the third day. It was evening and morning the fourth day. It was evening and morning the fifth day. It was evening and morning the sixth day. And there is no evening and morning the seventh day. God rests and the rabbis look at the story and they go, did you realize that the day seven never ends? It just kind of hangs on because your continual invitation is to trust the story. And when I say that, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying trust the story that God's telling in your life. That's what people have actually made t-shirts that say that. And I'm like, yay, no. <laughs> what I mean is trust the story of Genesis 1. Trust the story that creation is good, that God's not holding out on us, and you're always being invited to trust God's love for you. You're always being invited to rest to not find your value and your worth in what, God, what you can do, but to find your value and your worth in the fact that you are beloved before you ever did anything. Every day I sit in my chair after I, give, I do my spiritual practice and I sit for 10 minutes and I keep repeating the same mantra that I've worked on with my therapist. It's this mantra that says, I am not valuable or loved because of what I do and produce today. And should I fail today in large or small ways, it will not affect my worth. I will still be loved and valued. I am simply beloved. And I will say it over and over and over again. You want to know why? Because I have to. Because this world will continually invite me to not believe that. That you got to go do more. you got to go be more. That everything about you is not enough. That fear and insecurity, they always are going to. And every morning I have to remind myself... I am being invited to simply rest in the middle of my creating. This is why Sabbath is such an unbelievably helpful tool. And so I think about this invitation as you guys are in the middle of that big sermon series study on the story. And what you're learning, I think you're right at, like, are you in the middle of like 2 Samuel-ish? 
Like you're in the middle of learning all these stories about, I mean, this last week was about David and Bathsheba, right? What happens when you don't trust the story? What happens when fear and insecurity become the thing that start to drive your narrative? You start looking to fill that fear and insecurity in so many weird, crazy, destructive ways where if you just sat on the roof of your house and went, I am beloved, I don't need anything. I have everything I need. God's not holding out on me. This invitation to trust the story is what leads to the byproduct of sin. Adam and Eve were trusted, were invited to trust the story. They didn't. Cain and Abel. Cain is invited, like God literally shows up and is like, why are you angry? And Cain's like, because I screwed up my sacrifice. And God's like, yeah, who cares? That's my paraphrase. Nobody laughed at that. Okay, that's... It's not what the text says. God says, yeah, but if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? Cain, if you just trust the story, we can start fresh tomorrow morning. Yeah, you screwed up today. Who cares? What do I say every morning? Even if I fail today in large or small ways, it will not affect my worth. It's exactly what God tries to communicate to Cain. But if you don't, Cain, if you don't trust the story, fear and insecurity are going to cause you to do some really stupid things. And he kills his brother. Your entire journey through the story will be an invitation to trust the story and to learn from all the people who didn't and all the people who did, at least in their better moments. Eventually, you'll run into this guy named Jesus. Spoiler alert. He's going to trust the story perfectly. Scholars have actually pointed out the phrase pistis Christu. Say pistis Christu. That's the Greek for faith in Jesus. Only scholars have been like, that phrase can't really mean anything until creedal Christianity like 200 years later. So there's, there's faith in Jesus. The Greek, the Greek is muddy. Like you don't know what word to put in there. Faith in Jesus or faith of Jesus. I'm not trying to mess up your translation of your New Testament. It's such a fascinating phrase. I'm being invited to have the faithfulness of Jesus. Because you know what Jesus always did without fail? Trusted the story. You know what Jesus always knew? And even in his moments of doubt, chose to trust it in the middle of the desert, hungry, after 40 days of fasting. Oh, <laughs> you guys have got that coming. <laughs> I'm glad I'm getting in my truck and leaving. <laughs> I've had my bouts with fasting. You can't tell it either, Mr. Wagner, but I have had my, I get it. Jesus, even in his moments of doubts, chose to trust that he was loved, he was beloved. What was, he, what was the last words he heard in the story, in, the, in, your, in your New Testament? What were the last words he heard before he went out to the desert? Come on, Bible nerds, Church of Christ. Yes, yeah, 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 I want to know your name later. There's your Bible scholar right there. This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. If that's not Genesis 1, I don't know what is. Jesus was reminded at his baptism the truth of a tov mayod creation and where he fit in the midst of it. And then he was tested and he passed because he knew how to trust the story. He knew how to enter into this. Satan's like, you're hungry, aren't you? Yeah, but I'm good. God will give me bread. And if he doesn't, oh well but I'm not gonna let fear and insecurity drive 
the car. You want glory, don't you? Throw yourself up. No, I'm good. I don't need to test God. No thanks. All of this I'll give to you. I, I already have everything. I don't need anything more. You see, trusting the story is a thing that always bypasses and shortcuts the stuff that will lead us to sin, fear, and insecurity. So as you keep studying the story for weeks and weeks out, will you continue to remind yourself that when God looks at you, he sees something, he sees a creation that he loves. He sees somebody that he looks at and he says, it is Tov Mayod. And would you take a moment, God says, God says, would you take a Sabbath once a week? Would you have some parties and some celebration? I wasn't told about the God who commanded the party when I was growing up in church. Thank you for laughing at that. But God ordained the party in Leviticus. Some, some five times he says, you will party or I will kill you. <laughs> Read Leviticus, that's literally what he says. I will destroy you. I will cut you off from my people if you don't throw a party. Three of them every spring and three of them every fall because you need to be reminded about my love. And somewhere along the way, we forget that and we wallow in our sinner, sinner sinfulness, which is a big part of the story and not to be taken lightly because our sin is destructive. But the antidote is the gospel and always has been. Let me pray. God, it is unbelievably difficult to trust the story. Because we have so many narratives that come from inside of us, that come from the enemy. We have narratives that come from parents or from coaches that we had years ago, from mentors, from people that met. We carry around words and wounds, and they, we build these things into narratives. And you invite us to take a Sabbath. You invite us to throw a party. You invite us to trust the story of how you feel about your creation. Would you remind us that this is where you began your story? It was your story and this is where you wanted to begin it. This was the first lesson. Would you forgive us when we jump ahead to lesson two and act like lesson one doesn't matter? Help us to not forget lesson two either. But just help us to remember how to put all of those things in their proper place. So that above all, we remember that we're loved. Above all, we remember that we're valued. Above all, we remember our place in your creation as your beloved. That above all, we remember your gospel experienced in Jesus, seen throughout the pages of Torah, experienced at your Eucharist table every week. Would we think about the words that you said to Jesus, this is my son whom I love and him I am well pleased. And would we realize that you've said similar words to your people throughout the ages. So God, thanks. We love you. And we're going to need your help, but we ask for it to help us trust the story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.